Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, cinco, cinco seis. seis. <laughs> no, it's going to adjust. It's going to today. <laughs> when it's early. It is. <clears throat> Someone who didn't know either of us could listen to just the musical references we make on this podcast and narrow down our birthdays to within, what, six months? Well, I mean, we are two years apart. So right. within two years. But, but I'm guessing that they could probably even peg that. Because They're going to peg that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, yeah. yes, two years makes a difference, but you and I do have slightly different yeah. musical tastes and tend to make slightly different references. That's I true. wonder if someone who is incredibly pop culture literate could could nail down. Who doesn't know us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, could could listen to? Yeah, I would guess the, so. The musical and pop culture references we make on this show and uh, determine our respective ages based solely on that. Probably. Um, I'm supposed to go to a Y2K-themed Halloween party uh, here in Philly for Halloween, and I'm like... <sighs> that's fairly specifically generational right there. Well, it is, but like that's what's funny is I want it to be 90s-themed. Because <laughs> like, that's my nostalgia. Like, the 2000s are too, but I was already in college. So like right. my nostalgia, like anything like Halloween-y, like, like I was thinking about being April O'Neil from uh, Teenage, Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles. Turtles. Yeah. That's the 90s. Yeah, but so here's the thing it's, about... Here's the thing about the, the early 2000s. The early 2000s is just shitty the 90s. Well... <laughs> Well, so is the early 90s is the shitty 80s. Like, I mean, like, look at the fashion from the early 90s. It still looks like the 80s. Yeah. It always takes a few years. Yeah. But, like, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is solidly the 90s. Like. Early 90s. Yes, it is. But it's solidly the 90s. It just had a comeback. At least the movie. Because the movie just came out. Yeah. Which is why I was like, ooh, red hair. I can get a yellow, like, jumpsuit. That's easy. I can eat some pizza and <laughs> carry a turtle around. I don't like. <laughs> Sounds like a great Halloween costume. Yeah. I just carry around a pizza box and offer people pizza. And I was. And I was, go walk your pet turtle. And I was going to get, like, one of the, like, action figures and, like, carry it around in my pocket. Like, <laughs> you know. But. But yeah, the early the two thousands. I'm like, okay, I get it. It's like Mean Girls and like early Britney Spears and stuff. But I'm like, no one wants to wear low cut jeans, and that's what all the women were wearing. And yeah. I'm sorry, I'm in my forties. There's the end of the game. But like, I don't want to wear low waisted jeans. I barely want to wear high waisted jeans anymore. I'm good with like sweatpants. <laughs> Sweatpants and like no waistlines. Um, Ladies, gentlemen, you with me? <laughs> yeah, it's not particularly 90s ish. No, that kind of ties into uh, uh, what is our age? Because I'm like, uh, I don't 
don't want to revisit that era because that was my like early college trying to figure out my life, low waisted cut yuck clothing. What the hell is age again? What's what? my age again? What is my age again? What's my age again? Oh man. Well, welcome everybody to what is not a nostalgia podcast. No, well, it nor kind is- of is. Because we're reading stories from many, many years ago. Fair enough. It it's nostalgia a, if you're 170. If, if you're over 100 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was my neighbor. Sweet boy. <laughs> but Edgar he always Al- ran away with the milk bucket. Yes, and Edgar Allan Poe, what a good man he was. <clears throat> always in black. Strange, strange fellow. Very sweet. Strange child. Talks to crows. But, yeah, so I guess we are a nostalgia podcast, but really we're we're more like a uh, literary podcast. So for our listeners who are vampires, you will probably remember most of the stories we've read. Um, For everyone else... Oh, I I, want to reference that thing you showed me the other day that was very funny, the vampire thing. It's like... Uh, in Romania, everyone assumes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah, yeah. you tell it. Cause so you- it's it's um <laughs> uh it was it was it was a meme, and someone had posted basically. I am sick and tired of all of these nationality stereotypes that everyone assumes is true, even though they aren't. And someone responded, this is totally true. I'm from Romania, and everyone assumes we have nothing but vampires all over Romania. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm telling you, I am 700 years old, and I have never in my life seen another vampire. I just go home to my castle, and you know what? All of the guys I live with, they're even older than me, and none of them have seen a vampire either. It was so good. He was like, I've been here 700 years and I've never seen him. <laughs> yeah. Good shit. But yeah, so if you are a vampire listening, I I assume you're not just in Romania. <laughs> yeah, there are vampires all over the place. It's not just Romania. Yeah. There's a vampire in Brooklyn or something. Oh, yeah. When, and like, there's a movie about that. There's a vampire in L.A. that's once bitten with the classic yeah. early uh, Jim Carrey. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, if you're listening and you're There's a vampire vampire in my chocolate cereal. (laughs) Tis the season. If you are a vampire and you're listening to this, it is your job after this episode to email 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and let us know where you were and what you were doing when this week's story came out. Yes. I love that. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Great. Um, anyway, so uh, Campfire Classics is a literary comedy podcast where we shoot the shit for about 10 minutes and then we read short stories brought uh, to you from public domain, which usually means they're really old. old sometimes stories. Sometimes they're only kind of old, but usually they're really old. And um, yeah, and <laughs> we read them sight unseen and we try to do funny things while we do it. And that's basically the podcast. Uh, This week, I will be reading a story that Heather has selected for me to work my way through. But before we get to that, she's going to go ahead and provide some literary foreplay. Literary foreplay. Some fun facts that will put us in the mood for this week's story. So we have a new author this week. Sweet. I know. Um, It is uh, a woman, and her name is Mae Sinclair. 
which is a pseudonym for her, uh, like born her born name, <laughs> her like. I guess it's her Christian name because she's birth name, British. Her born yeah. name, her, her bapt, her her. What what is the way to say that? Her her, her Jason Bourne. Her, her OG name uh, is Mary Amelia Saint Clair. Uh, so Mary Sin- May Sinclair is her is our pen name, uh, and she was born August twenty fourth, eighteen sixty three. Miss Sinclair was born in Rockferry, Cheshire. So she's a British lady. Her mother was Amalia Sinclair, who was very strict and like domineering and religious, as religious people tend to be. <laughs> and her father, William Sinclair, was a Liverpool ship owner who went bankrupt, uh, became an alcoholic, and died when Sinclair was a child. So probably not quite so strict or religious. Well, probably was running away from mom who was strict and religious. Yeah. Did they have um, a cat? I'm sure. <laughs> Why? The Cheshire cat. Oh, jeez. <laughs> 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 um, Big purple kitty. <laughs> so May or Mary was the youngest of six children, the only girl. Um, and so when her father passed away, the family moved to the edge of London, Ilford uh, is what it's called. She spent one year in Cheltenham Ladies College and did very well. Like her professors loved her. They started to introduce her to philosophy. She was fluent in German, yada, yada. But then she had to leave school to look after her brothers. Four of five, all older than her, were suffering from a fatal congenital heart disease. Jesus. So, yeah. So she stayed home and took care of her family and started writing. Like, and so she started publishing uh, in 1860, or 18, not 1860, that was before she was born. She started publishing novels to support her family, her brothers, and her mother, um, starting in 1896. I have to become an artist so I can support yeah. my family. Well, huh? she had to find something she could do from home, so she actually started, like, translating German. Because she was fluent in German, so she was doing a lot of translation work, mm-hmm. um, but also reading a lot and writing. So, oh, she was the original work from home. Yep, she was the OG work from home. <laughs> uh, so then her mother ended up passing away from a heart attack. So heart heart's not great in this family oh. uh, in 1901, but she considered this uh, freeing because her mother was not her favorite person um, and she was an active feminist. So I bet that was a fun household to be in. (laughs) Um, Sinclair treated uh, a number of the themes relating to the position of women in marriage in her her literature. Uh, Her work sold really well in the United States before they sold well in England because like the progressive woman was more accepted in the United States uh, early on. So in a couple years go by, she's publishing, she's publishing, she's publishing. And in 1912, the Women's Writers Suffragette League published her ideas on feminism. So here, uh, Sinclair debunked theories put forward by Sir Roth Wright that said the suffragists were only powered by their sexual frustration because of the shortage of men. Sounds very Lysistrata bullshit. Like, like. The idea that these the guys are like, but our penises, and they're like, no, nah, fuck this. So, so she's kind of like, no, that's not it. We control this. Let's be real. Um, she said that suffrage was uh, a class struggle, um, and 
similar aspirate uh, of people, of women wanting similar things to men, and men were now thinking they're competing with women, which is fucked up, <laughs> basically is what she wrote. Like, she's like, the ambitions of women should not demoral, de- demean, demand, de- like, de- diminish. diminish the, like, the the strength of the male working class, basically. So pretty progressive for her time. Sure. Um, very uh, correct, I would argue, because there's still feel, guys today. I feel today like that you are- don't run into a lot of writers who were looking at them going like, oh, you're kind of regressive and reactionary. Like if you get into the arts like that, you're probably going to be pretty progressive for your time. Uh, one of her favorite uh Moments as someone wrote that she dressed up as a demure rebel, Jane Austen, for one of the suffrage fundraising events. <laughs> so uh, her 1913 novel. She, she went to political rallies and cosplay. Yeah, <laughs> right? Amazing. <laughs> Her 1913 novel, The Combined Maze, was the story of a London clerk and two women he loves, and that was highly praised by critics, including George Orwell, and Agatha Christie considers it one of the greatest English novels of its time. Huh, cool. Uh, Sinclair was very interested in parapsychology and spiritualism, as many were progressive people were at the time. Mm-hmm. She was a member of the Society of Physical uh, Research from 1914. So she was... All over, like, again, this is someone who had, like, a crazy literary career, and I can't believe we never read them. Um, She wrote this, she was very interested in the Bronte sisters. Okay. She wrote a- That makes me a a little nervous, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) She wrote a novel, um, most of her novels were, like, kind of in that vein. Uh, She wrote a novel called The Three Sisters- uh, in 1914, that was loosely based on the lives of the Bronte, Bronte sisters and examines repre, uh, repressiveness of the Victorian and Edwardian society. Um, it was the first of many of her novels that were categorized as psychological novels or works that investigated psychological concepts such as the unconscious and the subliminal. So she was fluent in German, so she was very, very, uh, like, um, influenced by Freud and by, like, Einstein and, like, very progressive, like, thinkers, because Germany was very progressive in that sense. At the pinnacle of her career, so this is 1920 now, uh, she's being called, like, the most widely known woman artist in the country and in America. So crazy we've never heard of her, which is what all the articles I read were like, she's kind of been lost in time. Sinclair wrote two novels of supernatural fiction, the most well-known being Uncanny Stories, which was collected over about 10 years and published in 1923. Uh, This was called, uh, she was called an underrated writer. It was excellent. uh, This collection of ghost stories and like supernatural fiction was considered an important contribution to the ghost story like genre. Uh, she's considered an innovator of modern fiction and uh, a precursor to Virginia Woolf. Oh, cool. She was like, Virginia Woolf was very influenced by Mae Sinclair, which is cool. So, unfortunately, in the late 1920s, she started suffering from early signs of Parkinson's disease and ceased writing. She went to live with her companion and housekeeper, Florence Bartrop. I could not find anything that, like, was like, what is her sexuality? But she never married, and she retired for the last 20 years of her life with her 
best girlfriend. So make your choices. Um, her friends lost contact with her. She just kind of like was like, fuck this, Fell bye. Off the face of the earth. And she died in 1946. Um, or did she? Or ooh. I'm not saying she's definitely a vampire. She might be listening now. But she became super reclusive. Her friends never saw her she anymore. Had a disease. She, uh, uh, yep. And went off with her companion. Hey. Isn't that like a vampire's term? A companion? Yeah. A familiar? A familiar. Hey, May Sinclair, if you're listening, and I really hope you are, <laughs> um, We're just, excited. Just, just email us with a little update. Let us know how you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. I hope we like your story. Um, I'm sure we will. So uh, every, like I said, every article I read was like, she's kind of been lost to time. But one of the articles from Yale, like uh, I read like the Yale Literature Society, they were like, in the past like 20 years, a lot of her stories are getting reprinted and like new editions. And plus Gutenberg, which is where I got this story, has published her entire works. And so they're now coming back. Like cool. People are rediscovering this woman who's kind of been lost to time, yeah, who was great. so influential during her time. So yay. So here we are contributing to the rise of May Sinclair, the re-rise. Uh, today, you will be reading The Token that was first published in Uncanny Stories in 1923. Let's start this Let's fire. Let's do it. The Token by May Sinclair I have only known one absolutely adorable woman, and that was my brother's wife, Cicely Dunbar. Okay, so we're doing importance of being earnest. (laughs) (laughs) Cicely. (laughs) Sisters-in-law do not, I think, invariably adore each other. And I am aware that my chief merit in Cicely's eyes was that I am Donald's sister. But for me, there was no question of extraneous quality. It was all pure Cicely. Oh, she really likes this girl. Yeah. And how Donald, uh, but then like all the Dunbars, Donald suffers from being Scottish (laughs) so that... If he has a feeling, he makes it a point of honor to pretend he hasn't. (laughs) Scottish people. Ooh, are you going to get to do a Scottish dialect? Very waspy. Yes. I dare say he let himself go a bit during his courtship when he was not, strictly speaking, himself, but... After he had once married her, I think he would have died rather than have told Cicely in so many words that he loved her. Oh, lovely. He's like, he became a hopeless romantic when he was courting this adorable woman. But then when they got married, he's like, yeah, I'm done. Now I'm going to clam up. Tale as old as time. (laughs) (laughs) And Cicely wanted to be told. You say she ought to have known without telling? You don't know Donald. You can't conceive the perverse ingenuity he could put into hiding his affection. He has that peculiar temper. I think it's Scottish. (laughs) That delights in snubbing and fault-finding and defeating expectation. 
If he knows you want him to do a thing, that alone is reason enough with Donald for not doing it. And my sister, who was as transparent as white crystal, was never able to conceal a want. So that Donald could, as we said, have her at every turn. Oh my God, this sounds like the most uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde couple of all time. (laughs) Like, she's this adorable, like, lovely, like, flouncy, like, I love love. And he's like, I'm Scottish. I don't, uh, that's not Scottish. (laughs) I don't know what that was. It's too early. Uh, I'm not even going to I I would like to point out you're doing this to yourself. You're not even reading. You don't have to do any accents. I was trying to channel like David Tennant or something, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) It's too early. Continue. (laughs) And then I don't think my brother really knew how ill she was. Uh-oh. He didn't want to know. Besides, he was so wrapped up in trying to finish his development of social economics, which, by the way, he hasn't finished yet, that he had no eyes to see what we all saw, that the way her poor little heart was going, Sicily couldn't have very long to live. Of course, he understood that this was why, in those last months, they had to have separate rooms. And this in the first year of their marriage, when he was still violently in love with her. I keep those two facts firmly in my mind when I try to excuse Donald, for it was the main cause of that unkindness and perversity which I find it so hard to forgive. Even now, when I think how he used to discharge it on the poor little thing as if it had been her fault, I have to remind myself that the lamb's innocence made her a little trying. She couldn't understand why Donald didn't want to have her with him in his library anymore while he read or wrote. It seemed to her sheer cruelty to shut her out now when she was ill, seeing that before she was ill, she had always had her chair by the fireplace, where she would sit over her book or her embroidery for hours without speaking, hardly daring to breathe lest she should interrupt him. Now was the time, she thought, when she might expect a little indulgence. Yeah, Donald doesn't sound super, uh, um, smart. (laughs) Or kind. Or kind. <laughs> like, or aware or aware. compassionate. I guess, I guess aware. I, I think it sounds, that's what it seems the author May has told us, is like, I'm trying to forgive him because he just seems like a fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, stupid man. Had yep. no idea how well, yeah, much he was hurting this woman. Yeah. And that's, that's what loved. she's saying. That's what she's saying is that they're, you know, he also loved that her, she but was kind no of idea. annoying. <laughs> well, because she was so innocent. Mm-hmm. And she just wanted to be next to him. Oh no, how terrible. In the first year of their marriage, as she dies. <laughs> Do you suppose that Donald would give his feelings as an explanation? Not he. They were his feelings, and he wouldn't talk about them, and he never explained anything you didn't understand. That, her wanting to sit with him in the library, was what they had the awful quarrel about the day before she died. 
that and the paperweight, the precious paperweight that he wouldn't let anybody touch because George Meredith had given it to him. It was a brass block surmounted by a white alabaster Buddha painted in gilt. And it had an inscription to Donald Dunbar from George Meredith in affectionate regard. So that's his lover. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> did he kill her with a paperweight? I'm so scared now. <laughs> that would be a wild turn. It sure would. Like, what the fuck? So her death had nothing to do with her sickness? I don't know what her sickness is. I'm guessing it's consumption. That's what everyone dies of now, like in this time. Yes. Vampirism? <laughs> She's act, it's actually autobiographical. Yeah. She's been bit by a vampire and is slowly, slowly dying. Turning, yeah. yeah. Yep. My brother was extremely attached to this paperweight, partly, I'm afraid, because it proclaimed his intimacy with the great man. His intimacy with the great man. See? Arr. Called it. <laughs> For this reason, it was known in the family, ironically, as the token. It stood on Donald's writing table at his elbow, so near the ink pot that the white Buddha had received a splash or two. And this evening, Cicely had come into us in the library and had annoyed Donald by staying in it when he wanted her to go. She had taken up the token and was cleaning it to give herself a pretext. She died after the quarrel they had then. Oh, see, he did. He, like, got her too angry and upset, and she died. What an asshole, because she cleaned his fucking lover's paperweight. (laughs) Donald deserves the haunting he's about to get, because I have a feeling that's where we're going. (laughs) Is she going to, like, possess... Smash him with the paperweight? No, she's going to possess the Buddha on the paperweight. (laughs) And now he's he's never going to be able to enjoy it again, because it's all... it's, It's, like... Freaking haunted as hell. Haunted objects. Yay! Haunted objects. Ooh! It began by Donald shouting at her. Donald, you suck. What are you doing with that paperweight? You're not going to make him Scottish? I... (laughs) It's all right. You don't have to. After the great success you had? (laughs) What are you talking about? This is the best Scottish accent you ever heard. (laughs) Just a pirate. (laughs) I'm not convinced that was Scottish. No, it's not. I'm not even convinced that was words. Did you sense the sarcasm? <laughs> Only getting the ink off. I can see her now, the darling. She had wetted the corner of her handkerchief with her little pink tongue and was rubbing the Buddha. Yeah, <laughs> she's rubbing the Buddha with her little <laughs> pink <laughs> tongue. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's pissed. He doesn't want his wife tonguing his Buddha. Yeah, hey, said nobody ever. <laughs> Truly, though? At the risk of offending... Buddhists oh, a whole offended. bunch of people. Buddhists don't get offended. <laughs> I think tonguing the Buddha just became a new euphemism. Oh, yes, it did. <laughs> Her hands had begun to tremble when he shouted, Put it down, can't you? I've told you not to touch my things. What a dickwad. You inked him, she said. She was giving one last rub as he rose, threatening. Put it down. The poor child, she did put it down. 
Indeed, she dropped it at his feet. That's right. Oh, she cried out and stooped quickly to pick it up. Her large, tear-glassed eyes glanced at him, frightened. He isn't broken. No thanks to you, he growled. You beast! You know I'd die rather than break anything you care about. It'll be broken someday if you will come meddling. I couldn't bear it. I said, you mustn't yell at her like that. You know she can't stand it. You'll make her ill again. That sobered him for a moment. Thank God. Thank God friends in the room. Like, his, yeah. well, and it's a female friend. It's his, like, sister. It's his sister. His sister's like, why are you being such a fucking asshole to your wife? I'm sorry, he said. But he made it sound as if he wasn't. <laughs> If you're sorry, she persisted, you might let me stay with you. I'll be as quiet as a mouse. No, I don't want you. I can't work with you in the room. You can work with Helen. You're not Helen. (laughs) Jesus. He only means he's not in love with me, dear. He means I'm no use to him. I know I'm not. I can't even sit on his manuscripts and keep them down. He cares more about that damned paperweight than he does for me. Mm-hmm. Well, George Meredith gave it me. <laughs> George Meredith's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and nobody gave you me. I gave myself. Aww. That worked up his devil again. He had to torment her. Take a deep breath, Scottish man. You're going to make a bad choice. <laughs> it can't have cost you much. <gasps> he said. I may remind you that the paperweight has some intrinsic value. Oh my god, I hope he dies. Well, no, she's going to. Well, she we is, already know We already that. know she's going to die, but I hope she haunts him to his death. Yeah, I mean, unless he's a vampire too, he will eventually die. <laughs> With that, he left her. What's he gone out for? She asked me. Because he's ashamed of himself, I suppose, I said. Oh, Cicely, why will you answer him? You know what he is. An asshole? No, she said passionately. That's what I don't know. I never have known. At least you know he's in love with you. He has a queer way of showing it then. Oh, no. This is like the, like, like... Stand, like standard of abusive relationship. You know he loves you because the way he screams in your face and says you have no intrinsic value. This is somewhere between Streetcar Named Desire yeah. and Carousel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He never does anything but stamp and shout and find fault with me. All about an old paperweight. She was caressing it as she spoke, stroking the alabaster Buddha as if it had been a live thing. She just wants to stroke his Buddha and tongue his Buddha. Stroking and and tonguing the Buddha. He is not interested in her tongue, just George Watch's-Face. His poor Buddha. Do you think it'll break if I stroke it? (laughs) Well, maybe don't be so aggressive with it. I mean, damn. (laughs) Mm, Nope, nope. Maybe he's being such a dick because he wants more aggression. He wants you to treat the Buddha more roughly. He wants it rough. He wants to get pegged. Going back to the very beginning of the episode. (laughs) Stroke it until you break it. He wants to get pegged with the Buddha paperweight. 
I have been imagining a paperweight of a size and angularity that would make that, we'll say, impractical. I the think angles might be odd. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> I'm picturing something with a base that is wide enough that. Well, you um, want the base to like you gotta stop it. <laughs> the base needs to be thicker. Base doesn't go inside. Okay. <laughs> What? Do you think it'll break if I stroke it? Better not. Honestly, Helen, I'd rather die than hurt anything he really cared for. Yet, look how he hurts me. Some men must hurt the things they care for. When you walk through a storm, keep your head up high. Fucking shit. Some men must hurt the things they care for. I wouldn't mind his hurting if only I knew he cared. Helen, I'd give anything to know. I think you might know. I don't! I don't! Well, you'll know someday. Never! He won't tell me! He's scotch, my dear. It would kill him to tell you. Wow, we have some opinions about Scottish people in this story. <laughs> Then how am I to know? If I died tomorrow, I should die not knowing. And that night, not knowing, she died. Fuck. She died because she had never really known. So she died of a broken fucking heart because this Scottish man is so in love with his Buddha from George Meredith. That how he very couldn't... turn of the century. Yes. She died of a broken, broken heart. heart. We never talked about her. It was not my brother's way. Words hurt him to speak or to hear them. He had become more morose than ever, but less irritable, the source of his irritation being gone. Though he plunged into work as another man might have plunged into dissipation to drown the thought of her. Dissipation? A descent into drunkenness and sexual dissipation. A dissipated living is the noun. The squandering of money, energy, or resources. So, like, depression. Though he plunged into work as another man might have plunged into dissipation to drown the thought of her, you could see that he had no longer any interest in it. He no longer loved it. He attacked it with a fury that had more hate in it than love. He would spend the greater part of the day and the long evenings shut up in his library, only going out for a short walk an hour before dinner. You could see that soon all spontaneous impulses would be checked in him and he would become a creature of habit and routine. I tried so denial. He is in the, seven, in the five stages of grief or seven stages of grief. He is in pure denial. Because he's like... Yeah. And anger. Well, depression. De depression. He's, he's in all of them. He's experiencing all of them he's at once. He's just going, but he's uh, t he's treating his work like the like the like the uh, the target. Mm -hmm. I tried to rouse him, to shake him up out of his deadly groove, but it was no use. The first effort, for he did make efforts, exhausted him, and he sank back into it again. But. He liked to have me with him, and all the time that I could spare from my housekeeping and gardening I spent in the library. 
I think he didn't like to be left alone there in the place where they had the quarrel that killed her. And I noticed that the cause of it, the token, had disappeared from his table. It's in his butt. <laughs> Which is probably why he's in such a shitty mood. Shit, because he can't shitty shit. All the angles. All the angles. All the, all the Buddha belly is protruding out. <laughs> And all her things, everything that could remind him of her, had been put away. It was the dead, burying its dead. Only the chair she had loved remained in its place by the side of the hearth. Her chair, if you could call it hers when she wasn't allowed to sit in it. It was always empty, for by tacit consent, we both avoided it. Yeah, this sounds so healthy. We would sit there for hours at a time without speaking while he worked and I read or sewed. I never dared to ask him whether he sometimes had, as I had, the sense of Cicely's presence there in that room which she had so longed to enter from which she had been so cruelly shut out. You couldn't tell what he felt or didn't feel. My brother's face was a heavy, somber mask. His back bent over the writing table, a wall behind which he hid himself. You must know that twice in my life I have more than felt these presences. I have seen them. This may be because I am on both sides a Highland Celt, and my mother had the same uncanny gift. Witches. I had never spoken of these appearances to Donald because he would have put it all down to what he calls my hysterical fancy. Women and their hysterics. And I am sure that if he ever felt or saw anything himself, he would never own it. I ought to explain that each time the vision was premonitory of a death. In Cicely's case, I had no such warning. And each time it only lasted for a second. Also, that though I am certain I was wide awake each time, it is open to anybody to say I was asleep and dreamed it. The queer thing was that I was neither frightened nor surprised. And so I was neither surprised nor frightened now, the first evening that I saw her. Cicely's back! Guess who's back? Cicely's back, back again. With the paperweight in her hand. Cicely's back. Cicely's back. Cicely's back. <laughs> that got ghoulish. Yeah, because she's ghost. <laughs> ghost. It was in the early autumn twilight, about six o'clock. I was sitting in my place in front of the fireplace. Donald was in his armchair on my left, smoking a pipe as usual before the lamplight drove him out of doors into the dark. I had had so strong a sense of Cicely's being there in the room that I felt nothing but a sudden sacred pang that was half joy when I looked up and saw her sitting in the chair on my right. The phantasm was perfect and vivid, as if it had been flesh and blood. I should have thought that it was Cicely herself if I hadn't known that she was dead. She wasn't looking at me. 
Her face was turned to Donald with that longing, wondering look that it used to have, searching his face for the secret that he kept from her. <laughs> Come on, she's dead. Give her some peace. I looked at Donald. His chin was sunk a little, the pipe drooping from the corner of his mouth. He was heavy, absorbed in his smoking. It was clear that he did not see what I saw. And whereas those other phantasms that I told you about disappeared at once, this lasted some little time, and always with its eyes fixed on Donald. It even lasted while Donald stirred, while he stooped forward, knocking the ashes out of his pipe against the hub, while he sighed, stretched himself, turned, and left the room. Then, as the door shut behind him, the whole figure went out suddenly, not flickering, but like a light you switch off. I see, like, it's like a, a, a neon light. I feel like it went, and it's gone. <laughs> I saw it again next evening, and the next, at the same time, and in the same place, and with the same look towards Donald, and again, I was sure that he did not see it. But I thought, from his uneasy sighing and stretching, that he had some sense of something there. No, I was not frightened. I was glad. You see, I loved Sicily. I remember thinking, at last, at last, you poor darling, you've got in, and you can stay as long as you like now. He can't turn you away. The girl got in the library, finally. <laughs> She just had to die to do it. She just had to die to sit in her husband's library. It's fucking Handmaid's Tale shit right here. The first few times I saw her, just as I have said, I would look up and find the phantasm there sitting in her chair, and it would disappear suddenly when Donald left the room. Then I knew I was alone. But as I grew used to its presence, or perhaps as it grew used to mine and found out that I was not afraid of it, that indeed I loved to have it there, it came, I think, to trust me, so that I was made aware of all its movements. I would see it coming across the room from the doorway, making straight for its desired place, and settling in a little curled-up posture of satisfaction, appeased, as if it had expected opposition that it no longer found. Yet that it was not happy, I could still see by its look at Donald. That never changed. It was as uncertain of him now as she had been in her lifetime. Up till now, the sixth or seventh time I had seen it, I had no clue to the secret of its appearance, and its movements seemed to me mysterious and without purpose. Only two things were clear. It was Donald that it came for. The instant he went, it disappeared. And I never once saw it when I was alone. And always it shows this room and this hour before the lights came when he sat doing nothing. It was clear also that he never saw it. Mm-hmm. But that it was there with him sometimes when I was not, I knew, for more than once, things on Donald's writing table, books or papers, would be moved out of their places, though never beyond reach, 
and he would ask me whether I had touched them. She's fucking with his stuff. Here we go. See, she's not just sitting in the chair. She's like, I'm going to touch your shit. I'm touching it. I'm touching it. I'm touching it's, it. It's a little bit like the, uh, the Winston pranks that don't go far enough. Oh, yeah. Like. <laughs> Feather in your shoe. There's a raisin in your cereal. I, like, that's not. Just one? <laughs> that's not a prank. That's just weird. That's just something odd. <laughs> Either you lie, he would say, or I'm mistaken. I could have sworn I put those notes on the left-hand side, and they aren't there now. At once, that was wonderful, I saw, yes, I saw her come and push the lost thing under his hand. And all he said was, well, I'm... I could have sworn... Yeah, fuck with him. Make him crazy. Make him lose it. For whether it had gained a sense of security or whether its purpose was now finally fixed, it began to move regularly about the room, and its movements had evidently a reason and an aim. It was looking for something. Give me the token, bitch! One evening, we were all there in our places, Donald silent in his chair and I in mine, and... It seated in its attitude of wonder and waiting when suddenly I saw Donald looking at me. Helen, he said, what are you staring for like that? I started. I had forgotten that the direction of my eyes would be bound sooner or later to betray me. I heard myself stammer, what was I staring? Yes, I wish you wouldn't. Oh, good. Now direct your anger at your at your sister. It's all good. I knew what he meant. He didn't want me to keep on looking at that chair. He didn't want to know that I was thinking of her. I bent my head closer over my sewing so that I no longer had the phantasm in sight. It was then I was aware that it had risen and was crossing the hearthrug. It stopped at Donald's knees and stood there, gazing at him with a look so intent and fixed that I could not doubt that this had some significance. I saw it put out its hand and touch him, and though Donald sighed and shifted his position, I could tell that he had neither seen nor felt anything. It turned to me then and this was the first time it had given any sign that it was conscious of my presence, it turned to me a look of supplication, such supplication as I had seen in my sister's face in her lifetime, when she could do nothing with him and implored me to intercede. At the same time, three words formed themselves inside my brain with a sudden, quick, impulsion as if I had heard them cried. Speak to him. Speak to him. I knew now what it wanted. It was trying to make itself seen by him, to make itself felt, and it was in anguish at finding that it could not. It knew that I saw it, and the idea had come to it that it could make use of me to get through to him. I think I must have guessed, even then, what it had come for. Okay, so uh, the sister is Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. <laughs> she's gonna, she's gonna, like, 
Molly, you're in danger. <laughs> you're in danger, girl. <laughs> uh, what's the song uh, where they dance? Uh, Unchained Melody. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, I just want him to tell me he loves me and dance with me one more time. So it's like the opposite of Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze's relationship in this. Yeah. <laughs> the absolute opposite. And it's not one more time. It's just once. Please. Ever. Once. Just, just fucking once. Look at me and touch me once. I think I must have guessed even then what it had come for. I said... You asked me what I was staring at, and I lied. I was looking at Cicely's chair. I saw him wince at the name. Yeah, bitch, speak up. Because, I went on, I don't know how you feel, but I always feel as if she were there. He said nothing, but he got up as though to shake off the oppression of the memory I had evoked, and stood leaning on the chimney piece with his back to me. The phantasm retreated to its place where it kept its eyes fixed on him as before. I was determined to break down his defenses, to make him say something it might hear, give some sign that it would understand. Donald, do you think it's a good thing, a kind thing, never to talk about her? Kind? Kind to whom? And to yourself, first of all. You can leave me out of it. To me, then. What's it got to do with you? His voice was hard and cutting as he could make it. Everything, I said. You forget. I loved her. Yeah, as much as you love George, I loved <laughs> He was silent. He did at least respect my love for her. Oh, good! But that wasn't what she wanted. That hurt him. I could feel him stiffen under it. You see, Donald, I persisted, I like thinking about her. It was cruel of me, but I had to break him. Yes, break him! Break him! You can think as much as you like, he said, provided you stop talking. All the same, it's as bad for you, I said, as it is for me not talking. I don't care if it's bad for me. I can't talk about her, Helen. I don't want to. How do you know, I said, it isn't bad for her? For her. I could see I had roused him. Yes, if she really is there all the time. How do you mean there? Here, in this room. I tell you, I can't get over that feeling that she's here. Oh, feel, feel, he said, but don't talk to me about it. <laughs> this guy needs some serious therapy. <laughs> and he left the room, flinging himself out in anger, and instantly her flame went out. <sighs> I thought... How he must have hurt her. It was the old thing over again. I trying to break him down to make him show her he 
beating us both off, punishing us both. You see, I knew now what she had come back for. She had come back to find out whether he loved her. With a longing unquenched by death, she had come back for certainty. And now, as always, my clumsy interference had only made him more hard, more obstinate. It's really upsetting to me how much he is stiffening and rousing and getting hard with his sister. Yeah, well, he clearly has some uh, uh, sexual frustration. Um, he has a lot going on. He's also beating them both off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw that and didn't say anything. <laughs> well, no, and that's why I mean, like, he's stiffening, he's hardening. He's beating them he's off. He's getting roused, and yeah. he's beating them off. Yep. Um, and it's really well, upsetting that I, that's his sister. I actually kind of do like her language choice uh, in this because she's the one that wrote against uh, the men that were against the suffragist movement that, like, it was just, like, they were going to come for their jobs and come for their, like, and it's because they all just wanted more sex and like they're coming for our jobs and it's just because they want to come it's yeah and so she's using over sexualized words to describe this man's anger at a woman just wanting to be treated like an equal yeah yep i thought if only he could see her but as long as he beats her off he never will <laughs> I mean, usually you see people when you beat them off, but I guess maybe they're into blindfolded weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe it's like a prostitute thing, so long as you don't make eye contact and no <laughs> kissing on the mouth. <laughs> Just kissing on the mouth. I've never heard eye contact. That's great. <laughs> Still, if I could once get him to believe that she was there, I made up my mind the next time I saw the phantasm, I would tell him. The next evening, and the next, its chair was empty, and I judged that it was keeping away, hurt by what it had heard the last time. But the third evening, we were hardly seated before I saw it. It was sitting up, alert and observant, not staring at Donald as it used, but looking round the room as if searching for something that it missed. Donald... I said. If I told you that Sicily is in the room now, I suppose you wouldn't believe me. Is it likely? No. All the same, I see her as plainly as I see you. The phantasm rose and moved to his side. She's standing close beside you. This <laughs> is like totally uh, Whoopi Goldberg. She's like, she's standing right there, standing right next to you. <laughs> and now it moved and went to the writing table. I turned and followed its movements. It slid its open hands over the table, touching everything, unmistakably feeling for something it believed to be there. A token. I went on. She's at the writing table now. She's looking for something. It stood back, baffled and distressed. Then suddenly it began opening and shutting the drawers without a sound, searching each one in turn. I said, oh, she's trying the drawers now. Well, he's got to see that. <laughs> Donald stood up. He was not looking at the place where it was. He was looking hard at me in anxiety and a sort of fright. I suppose that was why he remained unaware of the opening and shutting of drawers. <laughs> it continued its desperate searching. The bottom drawer stuck fast. I saw it pull and shake it. 
and stand back again, baffled. It's locked, I said. What's locked? The bottom drawer. Nonsense, it's nothing of the kind. It is, I tell you. Give me the key. Oh, Donald, give it me. <laughs> he shrugged his shoulders, but all the same, he felt in his pockets for the key, which he gave me with a little teasing gesture, as if humoring a child. I unlocked the drawer, pulled it out to its full length, and there, thrust away in the back, out of sight, I found the token. Yeah, he thrust it away out of sight in the back drawer. In his locked. locked drawer. In his locked drawer. I had not seen it since the day of Sicily's death. Who put it there? I asked. I did. Well, that's what she was looking for, I said. I held out the token to him in the palm of my hand as if it were proof that I had seen her. Helen, he said gravely, I think you must be ill. Oh no! Yep, there she is. She's crazy now. You think so? I'm not so ill that I don't know what you put it away for, I said. It was because she thought you cared for it more than you did for her. You can remind me of that. There must be something very badly wrong with you, Helen, he said. Yeah, how dare you speak truth? Perhaps. Perhaps I only want to know what she wanted. You did care for her, Donald. I couldn't see the phantasm now, but I could feel it close, close, vibrating, palpitating as I drove him. Care? <laughs> He cried. I was mad with caring for her, and she knew it. She didn't. She wouldn't be here now if she knew. At that, he turned from me to his station by the chimney piece. I followed him there. What are you going to do about it? I said. Do about it? What are you going to do with this? I thrust the token close towards him. He drew back, staring at it with a look of concentrated hate and loathing. Do with it, he said. The damn thing killed her. This is what I'm going to do with it. He snatched it from my hand and hurled it with all his force against the bars of the grate. The Buddha fell, broken to bits among the ashes. Boom! Then I heard him give a short, groaning cry. He stepped forward, opening his arms and I saw the phantasm slide between them. For a second, it stood there, folded to his breast. Then suddenly, before our eyes, it collapsed in a shining heap, a flicker of light on the floor at his feet. Then that went out, too. I never saw it again. Neither did my brother. But I didn't know this till some time afterwards, for somehow we hadn't cared to speak about it. And in the end, it was he who spoke first. We were sitting together in that room one evening in November when he said suddenly and irrelevantly, Helen, do you never see her now? No, I said, never. Do you think, then, she doesn't come? Why should she? I said. She found what she came for. 
She knows what she wanted to know. And that was what? Why, that you loved her. His eyes had a queer, submissive, wistful look. You think that is why she came back? He said. The end. Men are stupid! <laughs> Tell people you love them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like the fact that he still is like, that's why she came back? Like, he still does not, like, accept that that's what she was there for? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I mean, it's a complete denial. He needs so much therapy for clearly lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. He needed therapy before she passed. He needs even more therapy now that she's passed because he's not dealing with those emotions. I mean, the it's other. It, it's clearly a commentary on the cultural blotty blah from mm-hmm. from her time, from but Victorian it's still time, yeah. but it's still painfully true today oh, that yeah. I think, and I think it's more true with men, but I think it's generally true that people don't realize how important it is not only to talk about your own feelings for you, mm-hmm. but also to let other people know what feelings you have about them, yes. right? Because not only is it wildly emotionally crippling to not be willing to talk for yourself, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's also like we care, right? We care what other people think about us. We care yes. how other people feel about us. We care. It matters. Yep. And as as much as we might want to pretend that it's like, oh, no, I'm good just being myself. It doesn't matter I'm whatever people think own. about me. Yeah. By and large, that might be true. But the people we choose to spend our lives with, like, that matters. Yeah. It matters how they feel. Of course. And, um, yeah. So, hey, listener. Yeah, this week, go ahead and write in to us, especially if you happen to be a vampire. Um, uh, write in at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media by searching for Campfire Classics. But um, also, like more importantly than writing into us is just tell tell the people in your life how you feel about them. Write you know? to them or call them and or say it to their face if you're around them, how much you love them. Yeah, because that really matters it's important yeah Um, and like i saw a meme recently where it was like it's like a giant circle it's like somebody's life and then there's like a speck in it it's like what you know about it treat people with kindness yeah like like yeah like if yeah be kind be Mm -hmm. kind I know this is super commentary on like Victorian men and how they like were just like blah 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 blah. We don't show emotions mm-hmm. like, um, but yeah, it is very uh, still very relevant. <laughs> yeah, it and also to be true. And also sometimes a little tough love is necessary. <laughs> yeah, his sister gives him some tough love, and that finally like releases something in him that clearly needed to be released. Sometimes you got to tell somebody, like, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you love them. Like, his sister clearly loved him and was like, you are not okay. <laughs> yeah. And you can call me crazy, but come on. We are, you're not okay. Let's let's move on. Let's let's get through this. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let us know how you felt about that. Um, I just spouted out all the ways you can contact that us, so lovely. I'm not going to do that again. Um, tell us where you were. Hey, vampires, tell us where you were when this story came out. And tell someone you love them. And if you're having trouble figuring out the right words to use because being all emotional and whatever is is something unusual for you. And I get it. Like... It can be tough to be open with people, especially if you haven't already established a, a a rapport with them where that sort of emotionality is um, normal or acceptable. Uh, then you can start the conversation in a sort of light and weird place by using this week's secret passcode. You can say, hey, I need to tongue your Buddha. <laughs> I want to tongue your Buddha. <laughs> so this week's secret passcode is tongue the Buddha. Clearly. And, and if you, yeah, if if you if you need to start an awkward conversation with someone, start by saying, hey, I need to tongue your Buddha. So it's not a euphemism for sex. It's a euphemism for talking. For, em, for, for emotional, emotional conversations. Talking. Tongue your Buddha. Hey, I need, I you need know to what? tongue I your think, Buddha. I think Buddha would fucking approve I kind of like that, right? I kind of like it. I, I need to like talk through the emotion. To, yeah. I need to tongue the Buddha. I need to tongue your Buddha. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> damn, damn. See, we look, we progressed out of the sexual innuendo to like uh, psychological stimulation innuendo. I think, I think that's like a euphemistic heel turn. Yeah. It's like, I want to hear that in like a yoga class. Be like, now breathe out and really tongue the Buddha tongue the with Buddha. that sigh. <laughs> yes. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, that's everything I got. Anything from you? No, I I, I dig May Sinclair. Good. Yeah. I, welcome back to uh, literary uh, society. Welcome back to relevance. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. We've made you matter. <laughs> it, was, it was us. Uh, but if you <laughs> like her, go check her out. Her entire works are published on Gutenberg. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, all right. And on that note, until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs> Tongue the Buddha.